The last comment I'd make is that um, Paul on the last panel, who runs a $6.5 billion uh, multi-single family office, mentioned that sometimes he'll track somebody for four to six years before investing. I know that can, um, I guess if we can quiet down the room a little bit, in the middle here, if we can uh, keep the talking down, that would be great. But I know that uh, four to six years can sound like a depressingly long time for some of you, trying to build real relationships. Uh, but sometimes it's just four to nine months. But if you go into it with a mindset that all that matters is who you can close in the next 60 days, then things are gonna backfire and it's not gonna go well in the family office space. It's not about making a quick dollar this month. It's about finding a couple strategic investors who can really support you over time. All right, with that, would like to get started on the next discussion panel here. And this panel is gonna be talking about what is working in the marketplace. What is working to help people raise capital from family offices, from private investors in general, maybe from angel investors and small institutional investors. A lot of individuals struggle to raise their first five, 10, $20 million, while others are raising 30 million, $100 million, or $200 million a year. We have some individuals here in the room that are growing by $1 billion a year in AUM. I know we have a few groups here that uh, raised over $250 million of equity last year for their real estate projects. And then we have others here who have never raised a dollar and they just started their own firm. So the point of this discussion panel is really hear from successful sponsors, those who have done very well, learn what they're doing to navigate the family office space, and learn from peers who are every day meeting with family offices and working with them as clients. And to start out, I just want to go down the line uh, just for one or two minutes, maybe share each of your uh, perspectives. Maybe David, starting with yourself, and uh, introduce yourself to the room, please. Yeah, sure. Um, I spoke here recently, I think 45 minutes ago. Um, but yeah, David Babinski with, with True North. We've got an uh, enterprise of companies with the main focus on tax savings, and then that leads to several branches that are uh, specific to the capital raising side, the educational side. We deal directly with individuals, and we also deal with now and April is the perfect time. Um, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get into it. Great, thank you, David. Thanks, so I'm John Santema. I'm a co-founder and a general partner at Regal Healthcare Capital Partners. Uh, we're here because we are uh, in Fund One. Uh, we raised our fund about uh, 18 months ago, a $90 million fund. Um, the, the focus of the fund is investing in businesses that can benefit uh, from the consumerization of healthcare. Uh, our, uh, so our focus really is on our provider businesses, retail-based uh, healthcare businesses. Uh, my personal background is I was a healthcare investment banker for 20 years, uh, most of that time at uh, Citigroup and at UBS, and ultimately I was the global head of healthcare investment banking at Jefferies. Uh, my personal client base over those years really were healthcare services uh, companies um, across the spectrum of healthcare uh, services. Um, my partner uh, is probably known to some of you, Dr. Dave Kim. Uh, Dave uh, founded uh, what ultimately became CityMD, uh, and that's kind of the poster child for our investment thesis. CityMD, uh, as you guys uh, probably know, is the leading urgent care company uh, here in the uh, tri-state market and growing very, very quickly. Uh, so Dave was an emergency room physician, uh, actually an operational engineer by training. Uh, decided to go to medical school, became an ER doctor, found himself in an emergency room in the Bronx, and realized it was probably the least efficient place to deliver healthcare. Uh, and uh, pretty quickly, 
uh, put up the shingle and started what was uh, really one of the first urgent care offices in the New York market. Uh, ultimately, uh, that became CityMD. Uh, he helped grow CityMD to 80 offices and sold it in a very successful exit uh, to Warburg Pincus about two years ago. Um, and, and that really triggered the fund of a number of Dave's doctor partners uh, who had invested, obviously, in the CityMD business, but also a few other businesses Dave uh, uh, had uh, developed and started from scratch. Said, look, we got this money from Warburg Pincus. We, we want you to keep doing great things with it, Dave. We want to keep investing. Uh, so they gave him a chunk of that money, and Dave said to me, uh, uh, John, do you have any interest in trying something new? Um, and uh, it sounded pretty interesting. So we partnered up. I called some of my longtime clients, um, healthcare executives, well-known healthcare entrepreneurs, a number of whom had family offices, uh, and they ended up uh, investing about a third of the fund. Uh, Dave's partners were about a third of the fund, and Dave and I are about a third of the fund. So we were up and running uh, in about six weeks, which is... Uh, which was a little bit of a whirlwind, um, but fun. And we've been around now for just under two years. Uh, we've invested uh, in uh, autism services, dermatology, uh, retail dental services, uh, fertility, um, and um, medical uh, billing. So it's been, it's been, it's been a busy period. Uh, we focus on lower middle market. We focus on businesses uh, with three to five million of EBITDA. Uh, proven healthcare delivery businesses that have a couple of locations and want to grow like CityMD did to, you know, from two or three to 30, 40, 50, 80, and become regional uh, leaders. Great. Thank you. Nate? Hi. I'm Nate Klein, uh, one of the principals and founding partners of One Wall Partners. Uh, we focus on workforce housing, primarily in the Northeast. Uh, we started buying assets in Essex County, New Jersey in 2013. Uh, raised most of our capital from high net worth individuals and family offices. We've just uh, got our first institutional partner on a preferred deal and a big transaction we're closing in a few weeks. Um, and uh, my background prior to, to the real estate is that I, I spent time uh, at Merrill Lynch doing M&A, uh, Fortress, private equity, and then traveling around the world teaching finance and, and doing consulting on private equity and M&A transactions. Great. Thank you. Mark? Hi, Mark Nazarini. Um, in 2008, I was in commercial construction, had a successful business. We won about $50 million in bids in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, the economy changed. In 2010, we won zero. So I was looking for something to do. Uh, my brother-in-law went to University of Kentucky and is a geologist. Uh, introduced me to his old college roommate, who was a fourth-generation oil and gas man in eastern Kentucky. Um, so I, in 2011, I started Drill Baby Drill. I uh, raised capital exclusively for that sponsor. So um, having come from a great business, I thought, well, the first thing I'm to do is raise a million dollars. Why not? So um, first year, I didn't raise anything. Kind of reevaluated. Um, my first deal was $105,000. Uh, I thought that'd be a little easier. I was successful. I ended up dividing that into 16 parts, which is 65, 62, 50. Uh, I sold eight of those, and I funded the other half to get my first deal on the ground. Um, the next deal was 400000 was pretty successful. And then where the business really took off was 750000 And within 12 months, that deal returned $3 million. Um, my network started to grow. Uh, the next deal was 5.8 million. 
um, and then I, you know, had a network, maintained some of the smaller ones, and then eventually um, joint ventured with my sponsor. I earned his respect at that point and shared his network, and the last deal we did was for $30 million. So um, I really uh, raised capital exclusively for that one sponsor because um, he's consistent, reliable, under-promise, over-delivers. Um, in the last four years, um, we've had three exits that returned 2x to 4x to investors, very consistent. Um, and so I joined Family Office Club about six months ago. Uh, I was, had been successful just um, raising capital within my own network in Northeast Ohio. And I came here to um, just meet new people, expand the network, and uh, it's worked out pretty well so far. Great, thank you. And so we had a question on the last panel that we didn't have time to address very much uh, with the last panelist, which was how do you identify the families who actually want what you're looking to provide? Like for example, with you Mark, oil and gas, how do you, how do you know what families want to even be looking at oil and gas deals or healthcare deals? Um, do one or two of you want to take a swing at answering that on, on what you do to make effective use of your time and know who to go to? Well, well for me it was pretty easy. I looked at my client list um, <laughs> after 20 years. I sure. had a few relationships. And it goes to a lot of the themes that you hear today, which is it's all about <clears throat> knowing people and building trust and relationships and long time uh, uh, knowledge and experience uh, with people that invest with you. So, um, you know, everybody in our fund knows healthcare, uh, they're all healthcare experts. Um, you know, Dave and I were viewed as having good subject matter expertise. Uh, and I think between the long-term trusting relationships we had uh, with these healthcare family offices, healthcare entrepreneurs, um, uh, and, uh, and their trust that we would uh, make good use of their money, um, that, that's really what led to the success. So now we're getting inbound calls um, from, as the word's getting out a little bit about what we're doing. And, uh, you know, we're not actively raising money now, but we are, for reasonable people that are reaching out, we're, we're taking meetings and trying to, uh, to build relationships for the future. Sure. I mean, I think you mentioned a couple of really important things. One is you had relationships with people for a long period of time. You had domain expertise that others recognized around you. And three is that you're going to healthcare professionals who already understand the diabetes center, they already understand the urgent care center, et cetera, right? Those seem like three critical things. And a lot of times people are missing all three of those or one or two of them at least, I find. Uh, Mark? I was going to say, one of the ways <coughs> I found to expand my network and find people who are interested is um, once the deal closes and, it, and it's funded, that's really just the beginning. I spend a lot of time communicating, getting to know um, my investors from beginning to end. And as I build up that rapport relationship, find out how often they want to be updated, whether it's face-to-face -face or email. I like to try to do face-to-face -face at least quarterly and keep them well informed. And as that relationship develops, their network seems to open up and they're more willing to introduce you to people who might be interested. Sure. David? Yeah, we're, um, our experience with that is, you know, we're somewhat on the cutting edge. A lot of our, our plans might be red flags for your day in and day out CPA, but we attack that head on. Where we excel is education. So we will say, we don't want to like slide something by your current advisor. Who do we need, who else needs to know about this? So we had a Disney executive come in, and the first thing we said is we want to meet with your family office and educate them, had a good relationship struck with the CPA. He understood it. He understood our safeguards and how our program worked. 
And then he turned around and introduced us to three other families that wanted to have the benefits and couldn't, you know, didn't even realize that with such short notice they could get a 2018 benefit. So it's, it's not running away from all their other advisors. Being, you know, in your niche, be, you know, knowledgeable in what you're doing and don't be afraid to educate. And the business just comes from their network and we expand on that from there. Great, yeah, I think it's a good point that you can, you can educate to attract people who you didn't even know were interested in healthcare, oil and gas, or conservation easements, but then also after you engage with them, educating them to de-risk and build trust and add to their conviction on moving forward, I think is just as important. But at the center of all investments is about trust, growing the trust, and a lot of that comes through education. Uh, I found that's why we bring it up so often. Um, one of my first questions for this panel today is, what do you think makes up an investor relations advantage for your firm? What's allowed you to raise capital while others struggle to raise capital? If you could narrow it down to just one or two things, and hopefully we're not repetitive as we go down the line. Um, maybe we could start with you, Mark, and just work our way uh, down towards this way. Well, um, like I said, one of the, <coughs> the main way is making sure that the investor has a good experience from the moment they invest till the close. Um, that's really where the work begins, get to know them and uh, establish relationships, and that really is how I've built my business. Sure. Great. Yeah, w uh, one of our core values as a company is delivering on the promise, and I think that's particularly important and evident as it relates to this question and conversation. Um, we're, we're definitely of the mindset of under-promising and over-delivering and, and being conservative and under underwriting and, and giving people full transparency on all investments and, and how we made our decisions and what we're looking at and how we're analyzing them. Um, and then the second thing is really being a two-way street um, in terms of conversations with, with investors and prospective clients and so on is that, um, you know, listening to, to what people have to say, their feedback, um, responding to it, acting on it, not just kind of taking it as, as, as a criticism and moving on. Um, we really try to involve everybody and in, in their opinions. Great. Yeah, and I think what you said is so important about uh, you know, under-promising and over-delivering, because I think that experienced investors, when they see that somebody's promising a massive return, then they're feeling like that that, that manager is not really respecting the fact that they should be over-delivering if they're promising the world to the investor. Uh, and also at the same time, if you're a consumer products company or a company doing a capital raise and you're valuing yourself at 15 times revenue, because that's what companies exit at in your space, but you're doing under a million profits and everyone who's exiting is doing 10 million plus EBITDA, you're giving yourself the valuation of what you might have a decade from now. And again, you're asking the investor then to overpay and it's very hard to over deliver when you're pricing things at what you might do far down the road, I find. It's just kind of disrespectful to the investor. So as soon as they see stuff like that, they just back away, turn off, archive the email I found. So I think that's really important uh, what you brought up there. John? Yeah, I think in, in, in our case, our advantage was, was, I think, really threefold. I mentioned I think people perceived our expertise as being attractive, my transactional experience over 20 years, and Dave's um, uh, operational and entrepreneurial uh, success. I think having uh, uh, Dave, Dr. Kim, in the mix uh, was important because we didn't have a track record. Uh, Dave had started, uh, in addition to what became CityMD, two other businesses. Um, that had uh, realized extremely high multiples of invested capital. One was in the retail dental sector, another one was emergency room management. So we discussed those deals with investors. Again, they didn't have institutional money. That was all Dave and his doctor partners, but they were good successes. So I think that having that track record to speak to was valuable. 
Um, and I think the, 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 the another very important thing that put us all the goal line, over the goal line was a very outsized GP commitment. And I, and I think investors felt very aligned uh, with us. As a matter of fact, given our commitment, we, Dave and I kind of call this a friends and family office, uh, the way we're structured. Sure, great. David? Yeah, so I would say the key for us is similar to what I said before, but add value first. You know, when we, there's really two parts to it. You need to, to add value first. So when we're coming um, into a new relationship with someone, we will go move mountains to show them, you know, what kind of benefits we can offer. But the other thing is, and I know that Richard says this all the time, like no one else can do your own, your push-ups, right? Like th this is hard work. Like we, you have to actually engage with people. You have to talk, you have to get into and listen. See, that's the key instead of just presenting. So how we add value is we listen and we basically can customize uh, our offerings to each individual person. I'll give you an example. We are a CE provider for the American Dental Association. And again, you know, we'll talk to an individual dentist, but we want to know who is the preeminent CPA for dentists in Indianapolis. And then we'll go develop a relationship with that person. So again, you, you know, it's interesting how, how you say, you know, you started with 100,000 and you only got halfway there, right? You had to put your time in. It doesn't just happen overnight. There is no magic email that's gonna get, you know, oh, send me your wire instructions. That's never gonna happen. <laughs> oh, thank you for sending me that attachment of 80 pages. What are your wire instructions? So if that starts to happen, we should all leave this profession because it's just never gonna happen. I don't care what kind of crowd wants to fund whatever. Um, you have to do the work, and the only way to do the work is to add value. Those are really good points. I sometimes have people come here in the Family Office Club, they've never raised capital for anything before, but they want to acquire a professional sports team for $2 billion, or they're trying to get a real estate deal done for $4 billion, and you know there is no chance in the world, probably, that they're gonna do that, and let's say it's piggyback on some big brother firm that has the team, the experience, the track record, the trust of the market, et cetera. It's just not gonna happen. So I think that many times, even when someone's looking to do a $200 million fund, if they haven't done a fund before, it might take them two years or three years to raise 200 million, or they might never get it done versus if they just raised a three or $5 million fund or a 15, $20 million fund, got that done, did fund two the next year, did fund three the next year, they can maybe raise that $200 million across four funds, and now they can say we're on fund number four because family offices will say, you know, nice to meet you, but you know, show us your next one, show us your next one, we wanna get to know you, wanna get to know your team, and it shows momentum versus living a life of frustration and investor exhaustion, thinking that maybe you can't pull it all together. I guess that's what you've, you've done. Yeah, and <clears throat> you mentioned listening as well. One of the other keys that I've found is, um, you know, don't be afraid in an investor presentation if you're listening and you come to the conclusion that maybe this isn't the right opportunity for them and to say, you know, th th this isn't lining up with your investment goals, um, let's talk a little bit more about it. When I have something that's a better fit, maybe I'll come back. And you, you earn the trust and the respect of the investor that way, and I think that goes a long way. Sure, also uh, out of 400 people here, you know, just having the name Drill Baby Drill has a little bit of a sense of humor, which uh, never happens in our industry. <laughs> so I think that's always appreciated if you're naturally you know, if your strengths are getting along with people or you do have a sense of humor, I think like it, it makes a little bit of a difference because almost nobody does in our space. Everyone's straight-laced and conservative and just pitching uh, and, and kind of lacks personality sometimes. So, um, 
I also want to point out what David mentioned about doing your own push-ups. I recorded a video of that on YouTube, and it's gotten a lot of views about how a lot of people are trying to find the magic bullet to raise capital. So they think that if they found the one placement agent or they found the one person that can make introductions, and many times people think that, you know, well, we have sev over 1,750 registered family offices in the Family Office Club. Richard just introduced me to the 20 who want self-storage right now, and I'll get my whole fundraise. But I'm not waving the self-storage flag. I'm not only meeting with self-storage interested parties. I'm not a domain expert on that. People don't call me asking for self-storage guidance. You have to do your own push-ups on that because that's your expertise. That's your unique game that you're playing. And nobody else can do that for you. No third party is going to do that hard work for you. Um, you know, just like we heard John's experience in healthcare is what's led to the trust and the network and the years of relationship building, et cetera. So I think that's at the core of all this and really critical to success in raising capital. Um, I do want to go down the line in case somebody has deal flow that would link up with somebody here. We've had um, joint venture deals, new investment firms get started, $50 million seed allocations get done, fund managers uh, get allocations, et cetera, from uh, talks here on stage. So I'd just like to go through, starting with you, David, on as specific as possible, what's the most valuable type of deal flow um, or connection that you could make here today, and then we can just go down the line. You know, I think where, again, I could add the most value is if somebody is working with professionals, somebody's working, you know, on an investment, uh, assets under management, and you don't have the tax strategy expertise, you don't have the retirement plan, you, you kind of ignore it and hope that they, they work it out. Uh, give you a quick example. Uh, we spoke in Key Biscayne, and Richard was nice enough to ask us onto one of his podcasts. So we called in and did the podcast. Lo and behold, a week or two later, I get an email through the website who um, said, I've worked with a bunch of physicians, they're W-2. I never knew that you could get, like, after everything, you could take a deduction uh, and save this amount of taxes. Can we meet? And he flew to Orlando, and we ended up having dinner last night. He happened to be in town. And in the last four or five days, I've gotten 24, 30 referrals from him. So it took a year. We developed the relationship. We met in person twice, and the floodgates just kind of opened. So, you know, somebody who wants to add to their offering, you know, I don't want to call it a, a private label or a white label, but that's the type of network we're building. We, we filled nine deals last year basically through two multifamily office relationships. And Great. if we added a third in the next three years, that'd be a bonanza for us. So it's not like we don't need, you know, a little from everybody. We're just looking for the right relationship. Great. Yeah, no, that's a good point. We've got probably 12,000 downloads a month of the Family Office podcast, and we're putting out two episodes a week. Sometimes we put out a third episode. Um, so appreciate any of you that are listening to that already. Uh, John, what are you looking for as specifically as possible? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's an interesting background, actually, because I, I built my career and reputation uh, as an M&A advisor, selling uh, larger, attractive healthcare services business to middle market and big cap private equity funds for like 15 times EBITDA, which was great for my clients. But when I decided um, that I wanted to start investing my own and, and put a big chunk of my own net worth into this, it didn't feel great like going somewhere to spend my money at 15 times EBITDA. So, uh, so that's why we actually developed our, our thesis, which was to go down market, which was to uh, find smaller uh, companies with three to five million of EBITDA that have a couple of locations, 
that have a good model and that we, in particular with my partners, uh, experience around building from scratch, you know, leading uh, regional leaders to help that, that, that firm or that, that uh, doctor practice or the optical business or whatever go from three sites to 30 or 40, 50 sites. And then you can do that at a much lower multiple. And then hopefully uh, on the back end, you got that out at the higher multiples. So, so as I mentioned, we've done business uh, investments across the various sectors. We're continuing to look um, at additional deals. Uh, again, things that mostly really have a, a retail type franchise. So veterinarian services, outpatient uh, physical therapy, ophthalmology and optical, um, behavioral health, uh, even addiction, um, other areas that are in the news that need a lot of help. Um, so we really feel we can invest in these companies at good valuations, bring the expertise to help them build infrastructure and get ready to scale up, exit it, get a nice return, and at the same time really um, help a lot of people um, across these healthcare verticals. So are you trying to acquire now at at three to five, and usually comes in six to eight on the multiples. So, so anything of any size in healthcare services is typically selling ten to twelve, eleven to thirteen times EBITDA size, okay. meaning sort of twenty million of EBITDA or more. Sometimes even smaller gets to that multiple. So we're typically investing in high single-digit kind of multiples, okay. six, seven, sometimes eight. <coughs> and then if we're doing an acquisition strategy, you can usually acquire a bolt-on office in these various subsectors at more like five times, and then you improve them and you get down to four times, and then hopefully you'll get the double-digit exit on the way out. Sure, sure. I know we've had a couple uh, dental chain, dental clinics come into the Family Office Club recently, so we should chat. Uh, Nate, Anybody here who lives in New York, Dental 365 is one of our investments, and Dave started it. It's my dentist on West 79th Street. They're great. Go see. <laughs> 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 So as I mentioned before, we focus on workforce housing. Um, the way that we define that is, is market rate apartments that are affordable to people making 60 to 120% of the local AMI. Um, we primarily target trans-oriented and lifestyle-oriented properties that are in walkable areas, um, access to retail, employment centers. You know, Typically, that means an urban location or an infill location. Um, we buy generally speaking, undermanaged assets from um, you know, smaller or non-institutional operators, improve them, fix them up, renovate. We buy well below replacement cost. We have a lot of upside in rents because of either you know, rental discrepancies between other neighborhoods nearby towns or household ownership costs. Um, there's you know, significant variation, for example, between the affordability of an apartment in Newark, New Jersey versus a home in Westfield, New Jersey. And you draw the same kind of base of people from an employment center access standpoint when you look at two places like that. Um, the, uh, uh, so, I, so I mentioned we're big owners in Essex County. We've also making a big push into some of the outlying neighborhoods in Philadelphia, northern and western suburbs predominantly. Um, we have uh, two primary investor buckets. One is sort of a preferred income. It's a very secure, relatively high returning large co-invest from the sponsorship side. Oftentimes we do that in a recapitalization format where we have turned around a property, stabilized it, now we're selling down equity, retaining a big stake, let's say 40 to 50%, uh, but the cash flows of, of the refinanced assets support a very nice preferred return for somebody at a very low risk. Um, and then we look a lot for, uh, you know, JV partners to do some of the larger deals. Typical purchase prices are anywhere from 10 to 100 million plus. 
Um, so there's a lot of different check sizes that fit within our deals, um, and we find a lot of opportunities in these sort of what I call sub-institutional space. Um, there's less competition. We've been able to bid on things where there's only a handful of people involved, um, but really getting nice assets or short-circuiting processes or finding things off-market. Um, one of the you know best kind of risk-adjusted returns I'm seeing in the market right now for the things that we look at are some recent vintage Class A stuff that maybe was institutionally owned at one point, but it's reached its investment you know timeline, and now they've got to roll out of it, and it's a little bit too small for another institution to buy it, but at the time it was something that was attractive. Um, we just bought a 164 units from Matt Cali um, at a price that was several million dollars below what they paid five years ago for the same asset. So, um, so Nate, if I toss this microphone, I could probably uh, you know, hit a couple multifamily sponsors here, and if uh, one out of the two of them is probably struggling to raise capital, um, do you think that there's so many multifamily independent sponsors that that is the challenge? Uh, and part of the question is, what's allowed you to raise capital? Because some of the sponsors out there are trying to figure it out, and they haven't been able to crack it. So what's what's been making the difference? Because there is a lot of groups out there doing what you guys do. Yeah, um, there are, and, th and there's, it's hard to distinguish amongst a lot of groups, and sure. I think what's lacking for, for a lot of folks out in the marketplace is a fine-tuned rifle approach to their strategy. I think people look at oh, too, too many different markets at the same time or too many varieties of different properties. We're very kind of laser-focused on this, on this specific niche and attacking markets and having boots on the ground in the locations where we operate. And... We have domain expertise in those places and, and long-standing relationships, et cetera. And so if, you know, I'm not going to all of a sudden bring a deal to somebody in this room where I say there's a great yield on this random property in Iowa because it doesn't fit our strategy. Right, so right. So every, everything it's, that we're doing is going to be on brand or on message to what yeah. we've presented. I think that's so important. The more competitive your space, the more laser-focused you have to be, the more small and new and undercapitalized of a firm, the more laser-focused you have to be, the more that you haven't gotten traction yet the more that you're going to learn and get quick market feedback if all you're doing is acquiring diabetes centers, and that's all you do, you're going to know that market real well and know whether there's good investments out there or not, and people know what deal flow to send you because of that laser focus. So I think that's a really important point for those of you that are getting started and raising capital here. And then uh, finally with Mark, uh, what about yourself in terms of the exact types of oil and gas or you know wells you're looking to drill, et cetera? Specifically right now, we've been in mineral rights in the state of Kentucky. And interesting, in the state of Kentucky, mineral rights are severed from the surface, the land rights, deeded and recorded separately um, in the county courthouse. And they're classified by the IRS as real property. So you can 1031 exchange in, and actually when you exit, you can 1031 exchange into any, any other real property. Um, so um, anybody with, you know, looking for, you know, 1031 exchange money, I've, done a, I've had a lot of success there. But... Specifically, I have two types of deals, which are more of a return on capital with cash flow versus uh, long-term growth. Um, so in the one million and under range, you know, 10 to 20% cash on cash return with some growth secured by the real property, um, and it's 1031 exchange eligible. And then also in the mineral rights, um, the five to fifty million dollar range. We have about forty thousand acres available. Um, uh, short term, two to four, two to four x return. I'd say that's in a two to three year window. Um, long term legacy as a hold. Um, 
uh, we have, it's an, it's an emerging play. Um, we have proven there's been $80, $80 million worth of exploration. Um, we've had petroleum engineers. We've got a proven play that's, uh, we know that it's in the ground. They've compared it to Wolf Camp in Utica. We're buying at 1,000 an acre. Um, the PEs are valuing the, the oil and gas in the ground at 33,000 an acre. Now, in the under promise, over deliver, we're not saying we're going to sell it for that. that has to, that's probably a 20 to 30 year number um, and discounted for time and development. So um, that's where we come to our, and we've, we've been doing this for quite a while with successes. And if, when things take off and they're starting to, I'm looking in the three to five year window, two to four X returns. So cash flow, cash flow for cash on cash return, I have a million and under and anybody five to 50 million for long-term hold or uh, three to five year growth. Great, great, thank you. And uh, I'm familiar with Mark's model because about two, three months ago, it submitted through the member portal, um, the capital raising audit, the review of his materials. We just gave him some feedback and it allows me to get, get to know some of the family office club members uh, a lot better than just coming up and shaking hands for two minutes when there's so many people in the room. We're doing 45 reviews of materials for members this month, and we do it on the 15th of each month. You get your feedback 10 days later, and you get a three to five page analysis of just things to consider changing on your branding, your positioning, your wording, your pitch deck, your website, your one pager, et cetera. And um, you may not want to take any of the advice, but uh, there's almost always ideas in there that once you read it, you say, oh yeah, that's something we probably should get in place over time or, or consider. Um, any questions from the audience real quick? We have time for one or two quick questions. These are all individuals that have figured out how to raise capital from family offices, work with private investors, attract them consistently. Yes. The question is about timeline and psychology for early stage emerging managers, new sponsors. How long do you stick with it? How long should you expect it to take before you see signs of hope and getting capital raised? So you're not sticking to it too long, but also not giving up way too early. Does anyone want to comment on, on that? You know, I'll, I'll take a stab there. You know, what came to mind was it's, it's hard to climb Mount Everest without a Sherpa, right? You, you almost need a mentor, or you need to identify five, six, seven, what I would call most wanted. There's a famous quote, and the name isn't coming to me, but they said, you know, every time I went to someone and asked for money, I got advice. And every time I went and asked for advice, they ended up giving me money. So I think it just depends on, like you said, the psychology behind what are you trying to get. So maybe those first five or 10 that you want to invest in you, you actually approach and say, hey, I need some advice. This is where I'm trying to get to. And that relationship building will lead to money that's coming in. That's a long game. You have to be patient. You know, I, I, I don't know any other way to answer that, though. Sure. Um, one thing I'd mention related to that is that um, we've found that there's a lot of placement agents out there who will help raise capital. It's very hard to get them to help when you're at a very early stage. But we found that there was a big gap of not having any training or practical examples on how to get progress and get it done. 
And what we're trying to do, instead of someone coming to us and saying, hey, can you give me 10 leads for people that want to invest in stem cells, instead of giving them those 10 leads, or uh, you could call them fish, and they say, hey, I need 10 fish. Instead of giving them fish, we say, here's how to build a net, here's how to sharpen your hook, here's the bait, here's how to add genuine value so that the fish are coming towards you and you're positioning yourself right. Um, that's our attempt to try to be as helpful as possible. Have time for one more question, if somebody has one. Otherwise, then we'll give our panelists a chance. To, did anyone here want to get across a really important point that hasn't already been said that's really critical for those in the room to hear? Because um, I know we only went through about half the questions that we, we could have because we asked a couple extra ones. Uh, the one point I wanted to make, I guess, is that um, what I learned from my experience, um, and kind of answers your question a little bit, is um, uh, you're, you're much better off with a smaller, successful project will do more for growing your business than um, spending a bunch of time just trying to have that larger project. I mean, I think I learned that early, but really taking off small pieces and growing slowly over time, um, uh, you know, as you grow, your skill and your network start to match the dollar amount as it grows, so it's a start out small. I think one comment I'd make, especially to um, kind of the timeline for getting going and getting the first thing up and running is that uh, what I found was that family offices are really different. Uh, you can't take a one-stop one shop kind of approach to all the family offices. In particular, I found the biggest difference, and this was when I was a banker as well, and we had certain deals that might be attractive to family offices, that um, a 50 or $100 million family office, typically the wealthy individual who's behind that office is still pretty active, and they really look at something and decide if they want to do it or not. I found when we got to bigger family offices, 500, you know, billion kind of family offices, it was very institutional. They had a team that was in there that was screening everything that were um, asking institutional-like questions and getting, all, and, and in terms of data requests and all that information. And so I think if for an emerging uh, player, it's probably easier, uh, for an emerging manager, it's probably easier to be focusing on the smaller family offices where you can get the ear of the founder um, and um, and hopefully get them on board. I think it's easier than working through what they've set up in the bigger offices to basically keep you from talking to the founder. Great, thank you. David? Yeah, I, I would say too, uh, the analogy of being a generalist versus a specialist. I think if you want to kind of drill down into this, Richard has some content online on his story, on how we got down into the, the family office. Find a specialty that you're passionate about where there's a not even a need in the market, but a perceived need in the market, and you could do it. See, for us, it's kind of easy. I only want to deal with people who feel they're paying too much in taxes. So that's a pretty good niche, right? So if someone thinks they're paying too much in taxes, we've got strategies for you. 